Morrison government alleged rape scandal, boot changes given the boot, and the good news is about mushrooms and cranes. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your host, Ben Davison, and with me, as always, is the fantastic, the red flower in her hair, <laughs> resplendent, Van Batham. Van, how are you today? Ah, oh, the coronavirus diary in my grey regrowth, I think, is something we're both learning to live with, Ben. It's amazing how long your hair has gotten over the last 12 months, and it has almost been 12 months of uh, coronavirus in uh, in Australia now, hasn't it? Yes, and I've got to say, you got some lovely compliments about your big, bushy beard at the local cafe this morning from the neighbours. So I think we're both having a fabulous day. And we, of course, were respecting lockdown and wearing our masks and doing all the right things at the cafe, which was takeaway only. I just want to say that for anyone who was concerned that we were breaking the rules. We were not. We were following all of the rules, uh, which, of course, come off at midnight, which is good news. The indication, of course, is that Ben's beard is now so large, it peaks like past the mask, <laughs> which was kind of adorable. And we were saying to the neighbours, we're all going to look like sheep people by Christmas. Christmas. Like, it's fantastic. Yeah, well, that's right. Well, look, it's been a big week uh, in Australian politics and Australian news. How amazing is it to have news dominated by the absolute unempathetic horror of Australian politicians as opposed to American ones for a whole week? I know. It's, uh, I, I'm almost struggling to actually even know what's going on in the US, such as the lack of crazy, outrageous things happening there. Oh, I do want to point out the big American news story was Dr. Jill Biden, who I just I have this emotional connection to. Every time I see photos of her being nice, I tend to burst into tears, as well you know. She planted Valentine's Day hearts all over the lawn of the White House. Oh. And she said that just it had been such a hard year and she just wanted people to, you know, remember there's love and joy in the world and if we have love and joy, we'll be all right. And it was just really subtle and understated and kind and a nice thing. And I was like... She's so normal. <laughs> She's just such a normal, reasonable person. So, Dr. Jill, you have a fan in Australia. Oh, that's good news. But She I mean, also said college education should be free. That was the other bit. <laughs> now, closer to home, of course, we've seen this week the the breaking news of an event that seems to have occurred in March 2019 of an alleged rape in the Defence Minister's office. Van, what's going on here? Oh, it's horrendous. So Samantha Maiden started tweeting about this. And let's say from the outset, her reporting on this story has been exceptional. Yeah, really top quality. She is really tenacious, Samantha Maiden. And I think we all owe her a huge debt of gratitude that she has that quality because this story just keeps getting worse and worse. What we know is that a young woman who was at the time a 24-year-old Liberal Party staffer Mm -hmm. was uh, out in Canberra, Mm -hmm. was plied with drinks by a fellow staffer Mm -hmm. who was a man. So she was plied with drinks. This is according to the story she has told. She was brought by this man mm-hmm. uh, who was signif- was obviously significantly less drunk than her in the retelling, to Parliament House. Mm-hmm. They um, were provided entry mm-hmm. to Linda Reynolds, the Minister for Defence's office, yep. by security in Parliament House. Because they didn't have a key. That's a they didn't, today. They did not have a key. This is what yeah. Samantha Maiden reported today. And the young woman alleges that that man raped her in the minister's office, that she was begging him to stop and saying no, um, even though she was 
you know, mm. he had ensured that she was quite drunk, according yeah. to her telling, and uh, she was, I mean, it was horrific. It's horrific. And apparently there are details of what transpired that haven't been released publicly. Yeah. Um, as there always are in these horrific... Sorry, I, I do get quite emotional talking yeah. about this stuff. And she, he left the office mm-hmm. and she was left there mm-hmm. and no one checked in on her until the next day. Mm. Uh, and she was obviously, given the events that she has alleged have taken place in quite a state, yep. complaints were made. Yep. Uh, obviously, this kind of stuff is always handled through a chief of staff in a ministerial office. And she ended up in a meeting with the minister, mm. who is now on record saying that she didn't really direct this woman to do anything because she wanted to empower her in her own decision-making process. Right. Which tends to indicate that they basically... On the, hung the complaint out to dry. Yeah. And certainly this young woman, whose name is Brittany, has now been giving interviews to the project and other places where she said she feared escalating her complaint because this was all in advance of the 2019 election. Yeah, yeah. And she felt that the decision was essentially contextually made for her that the party and its, and this is a quote from her, that the party was more important than she was and the complaint was buried. And so so I, I understand that the, the, the man who has not been named, um, originally I read that he had resigned in the morning. He offered his resignation is what was reported. And now what I've seen today is that the government is trying to claim that he was terminated. Um, it That's seems, not what was in the original reporting, Yeah, Benjamin. so it seems to be a bit all over the place with that and that essentially Brittany was told she could go to WA or go home to the Gold Coast and then after the election um, wouldn't have a job if she, if she had decided to do that. These were these were the implications of various communications that were had on the basis of her complaint. Yeah. But one of the most outrageous details of this story is that the alleged rape took place in the minister's office mm. where the minister interviewed Brittany about the complaint. It's in the room isn't it? where it happened, allegedly. Now, obviously, Ben and I are speaking very carefully, and there's been a bit of discussion online. Like, it's been incredible to see just how intense response to this story has been for Mm. numerous reasons, which we'll get into. But number one is there are more than two million Australians who are survivors of sexual violence, Mm. and they're everywhere. I was saying this on Twitter today. They're in every social class. They are every form of gender expression. They are in every town. They are in every age group. And the dismissal of this woman's complaint, the implications around... Uh, what a complaint would mean for her individually, the kind of victim-blaming discourse Mm. that we're seeing already sort of encrossed around this story is 
really upsetting a lot of people because it, it's sexual violence leads to trauma. Mm. People deal with it in different ways. Trauma is as individual as individuals are, but it's very real and it never goes away. And so I was watching on social media last night just these volumes of people getting into this discussion with quite raw emotion. And there was a call going, why hasn't this guy been named? You know, why mm. don't we know who they are? And, it's, and I just want to make very clear to everybody, we're very careful with the language that we use when talking about these things because we want there to be a, a you know... Opportunity trans- for justice. An opportunity for justice that is actually centred on the person who is making the complaint. Mm. And if guilt is established, mm. we want the perpetrator to go to jail. Yeah. So... And that's a a general guideline. We don't name, we do not prejudice a judicial process. This is really important. So as tempting as it is to just go, let's get some pitchforks and some petrol bombs and find him behind the haystack, that's not what we do. We are a nation of laws and, yes, sometimes... Particularly when dealing with sexual violence, these laws can be inadequate, but we do what we can. And I expect everybody to be on board with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it is important, you know, as frustrated as people may be with the the response from Morrison, and and I note that you know, even today, people, uh, you know, it's going around on TikTok that he's failed, um, Brittany, and he's failed to uphold his uh, leadership role, uh, that People want the the, the guy uh, in this named. You just you just can't jeopardise the the proper judicial processes because otherwise you do end up with a situation where because of the way the law works you can you can have mistrials you can have people yeah. effectively acquitted of things that a court may well find them guilty of but because of the failure of process mm-hmm. um, they they're not um, subject to any form of um, legal punishment so it is important that we re- remind ourselves this is an alleged rape um, by no means are we suggesting that what Brittany is saying didn't happen or by no means are we suggesting that she's not a credible witness or any of those things. Um, I think anyone who's seen the footage of her talking about the incident um, can really only conclude that she is a very credible witness um, and that what she's talking about is something that occurred um, and that her perspective on that should be listened to and believed. Um, It's really... It's a really difficult and and emotionally charged issue, as you say, Van. Um, Yesterday, Morrison came out and spoke about it. Oh, my God. And seemed really to have made the situation much, much worse. Infinitely worse. So you have a situation where a young woman is alleging not only a rape but also a failure of process around that rape. The idea that you would make a complaint that alleged an act of sexual violence Mm. and that be discussed in the room where you have alleged that it happened Mm. is is staggering. Mm. It is absolutely staggering. Mm. So now we're at the point where Morrison gave a a press interview yesterday and told this 
extraordinary story where he said, you know, I was thinking about, and I'm paraphrasing because, sorry, everyone, I am so angry. Mm. Like, one, rape is horrific. It's Mm. horrific. Whatever form it takes, wherever it happens, whoever perpetrates it, it is absolutely horrific. Mm. And, And... Whatever the details of this particular allegation, Scott Morrison is the Prime Minister of this country. He is supposed to represent everybody and he is supposed to protect and act in the protection and defence of every single Australian citizen. That is his job. He doesn't get to pick and choose who he represents. If you have the top job, you represent Everyone. Absolutely. And including the two million adult survivors of sexual violence. And he stood there and gave this, I can only describe it as cockamamie story, where he literally pretended to care and said, I can't even quite, I'm so angry, I can't even quote it verbatim, but he he basically said, and some of this is is Mm. the, the direct quote, that, you know, he was thinking about it. And that night, he was thinking about these Mm. allegations and it really took his wife, Jenny, Mm. to clarify, was the term he used, the situation for him by suggesting, hey, Scott, imagine that it happened to your own daughters. And that's when the Prime Minister realised that perhaps it was quite a serious situation. And it's like... Yeah, the Prime Minister of Australia, how old is he? 50-something? Oh, late 50s, yeah. Late 50, maybe 57. He's been, like, raised in this country, a a nation of laws that's never really thought rape was great, like, even when it used to be legal in marriage until, um, unfortunately, 1995 in South Australia. But there has always been, like, a moral... Judgment. Mm. There has certainly been a legal judgment around that particular crime for many, many years. Yeah, absolutely. And yet, living in a country, two million, two million survivors, he's never really given it much thought until the other night when his wife had to explain it in terms of a relationship to his own daughters. He's so absolutely incapable of of onset morality or basic human empathy that had not occurred to him, according to his own story, mm. that rape was oh, a pretty serious experience until Jenny explained it to him at the house, on the couch, about his own kids. And it's just like the internet exploded and people were like, one, you only realised rape was bad last night because your wife explained it to you. And also you can only understand it in terms of it happened to your children. And it's just like this appalling discourse of, oh, yeah, imagine if it was your daughter. Imagine it happened to you, Scott. Like, put yourself, try and summon the imagination as a leader of this country and the 23 millions of Stra- mm. Australians and all the diversities of our experiences which you are supposed to have in the forefront of your thoughts at all time, at, like every day, but you can't even imagine what a person who'd been subject to an act of sexual violence might need or why that was wrong or why we morally condemn that. Like, so absolutely heartless and without feeling is this man that he stands there and he gives this ludicrous, well, Jenny set me straight story about how he's finally realised that rape is bad. Like, come on, come on. And people were like, 
somebody was like, she's she's someone. Yeah, that's like right. All, all, like, this happens to so many of us. And it's not just women. Like, it happens to men. It happens to, like, like I said, all communities. And people have just been, like, losing it. It, 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 it speaks to such a personal trauma. You know, it speaks to just, oh, God. God, the absolute abrogation of humanity and his lack of empathy is terrifying. And, of course, he's always been like this. I found um, a media clip today from Insiders seven Mm. years ago and it was about the suicide of um, an asylum seeker in a detention centre. And... And Barry Cassidy had asked Scott Morrison in Insiders, you know, like, do you think that should have happened? Do you think that... Could have been avoided. That could have been avoided. And Scott Morrison replied what he could have avoided overstaying his visa. And it's like, we've always known that this man has an empathy problem. They paid $190,000 as a government to hire an empathy consultant for Scott Morrison so he could learn how to relate to people. And I think the question a lot of people are asking is that if he's so incapable of thinking about crime or pain or trauma or any of those things without having his wife try to get him to think about it happening to his own children... Like, is he really invested in the protection of the rest of us? If a 24-year-old woman um, Mm. alleges that she was raped in a minister's office by another Liberal Party staffer, like, not long before the previous election, and come on, you and I have very in-depth experience of political campaigns, and something like that is not, like... That's something everybody learns about, like those kind of scandals and problems. And you can say, I mean, and that's why candidates get cut before elections. That's why heads roll. You know, that kind of... Oh, and and Morrison has, of course... I'm really emotional. No, that's okay. It's it's an emotional topic. Can I hold the dog? I think I need to cuddle the dog. Of course. There you go. I'm just handing him over. Oh, darling. There you go. Um, Of course, Morrison has said that he wasn't aware, his office wasn't aware. It's coming out today and it'll come out over the days ahead, I think, that some of that maybe isn't true. Um, It's been reported that Brittany was contacted by the the fixer, inverted commas, from Morrison's office. You know, there's a lot here that needs to be unpacked and I think it's going to take some time and it's it's good to see um, that there are journalists really pursuing this. I note that Morrison isn't doing media today at all. Peter Van Onselen um, tweeted about that today and then he was immediately contacted by the Prime Minister's office. He tweeted about that as well. I think I don't think they expected him to uh, and do that. People like not only Sam Maiden and Peter Van Onselen but Tegan George yeah. who got up Morrison immediately in the press conference yesterday and I do suggest everybody look at the, the footage is on her feed where she was, I mean she was obviously Horrified. Oh, it's an incredibly outrageous situation. And there, there was a lot. There was some really brilliant. I've tweeted some really brilliant commentary that came from just ordinary people on Facebook last yeah. night. And it's so obvious to people that it was a totally spun political message. Like I'm so homey and folksy, and I discuss these things with my wife just like you would. And I thought about my girls and what it means to be a good dad. And it's just like you're a monster. You're an actual monster of a human being. It's you know, and the reassurance that the country needs that, like, women should be safer in Parliament House than 
like almost anywhere, right? Anywhere. You would think. You would think that in, like, in the nation's How capital. have you failed to prevent allegations of acts of sexual violence mm. occurring in one of your own minister's office? And and amazingly, today I see that the head of parliamentary security operations resigned um, since that incident uh, as a result of the incident because security had let them into the office. Security did witness him leave the office without her leaving the office. There was internal debate about whether she should be checked on. There was debate about whether the office needed to be cleaned before Monday and who should be contacted and all the rest of it. and he's now uh, on the record saying that he left because of this incident. He's still in the public service and unable to comment further. Um, Morrison did talk about there being some form of inquiry. But again, you know, when you look at how these things are going to be executed, there's they're going to use a Liberal MP from WA to talk about how to set up an independent complaints procedure. And... They're going to use someone from the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet to look at the processes for complaints. Well, I'm so glad party loyalists are going to be determining what an independent process looks like, given allegations of another party loyalist allegedly raping another party loyalist while other party loyalists process the complaint. Like, it is... It's 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 something out of... Well, it, it's, it's the sort of thing you associate with a one-party state, really, isn't it? This kind of... The party will deal with the party's problems while the party runs the government and the party runs the parliament and the party runs the the bureaucracy. It, it's... It's quite terrifying to, to think that the minister has the minister has apologised. She apologised. Oh, I'm glad, Linda. In, well in, done. In, Thank you for apologising. Amazing. In, How know. humane well, and generous. How really generous of you. Well, I mean, my point on that is, you know, what does it take to get sacked from the Morrison cabinet? You know, if, if what Morrison says is true, and I have my doubts, as many people do, that he was not informed and not made aware that this... Um, potential crime given the fact it has been established that his office fixer was dealing with the complaint so if if the minister did not inform the prime minister's office and did not report the accusations of rape and did not deal with this issue in a way that is actually in line with the processes, procedures and expectations of the government, how is the minister able to hold that position in Cabinet? I mean, this really goes to the heart of the 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 blackness in the soul of the Morrison government, that there is no accountability, there is no transparency. There are no consequences. There are no consequences, whether it's as something as serious and traumatising and terrible as an alleged rape, whether it's handing out uh, Commonwealth money to donors in order to support ministers, whether it's selling off land at highly uh, in, inflated, or buying land, I should say, at highly inflated prices from developers. Oh, sports frauds, you know, like robo-debt. Like, where does the chain of incompetence or malfeasance, because I think, we're argue, like, when incompetence, is, incompetence reaches a level where people are hurt, it becomes malfeasance. Oh, it's- and, and there's a responsibility there. If people are continuing, people committed suicide because they were issued with robo-debt notices. Extremely vulnerable
all marginalised people were sent what was legally proven to be absolutely groundless, foundless um, demands, mm. and they died. They actually died. You know, I was speaking before about an, an asylum seeker who committed suicide because of the actions of this government. Like, what... What does it take for there to be any consequences? And there are none. Scott Morrison doesn't do responsibility. Scott Morrison is not interested in responsibility. He's interested in the photo shoots and the fancy hats and good seats at the football. But he doesn't. He Look, where are the consequences for any of his ministers who've been caught in scandal? From from branch stacking through to alleged rapes, through to robo-debt, through, as I said, to to buying land, to just, you know, grant rorts. It doesn't stop. And the reality is that... If this government was actually being held to account to a, to some form of democratic standard, I don't think half the cabinet members would be there. Frankly, no. I think they'd all be on the back bench if they were lucky. Can we just contextualise this? Contextualise this. Lind Reynolds is the minister for defence, and that was apparently why there was this debate about what needed to happen with the office, not about really uh, Brittany as a person, but that there was some concern that the security of the office being defence would be breached or had been breached and that there would be some national security implications. I mean, there's no allegation that there has been, by the way. Like, there's no no suggestion that that Brittany or um, the, the man involved have breached national security in any way. But that was apparently people's first thought. That's what the reporting is suggesting. And it and it does go to what you said before. There is a lack of conscience, a lack of humanity at the core of the Morrison government. That they, they weren't concerned about what had happened to Brittany. They weren't concerned about quite a large amount of circumstantial evidence that pointed to something untoward having happened to this woman, they were concerned that maybe there was a national security breach uh, and the debate was about how to manage that, really. But it's like I don't really trust Linda Reynolds to make adult wise, mature decisions about the military defence of my country and its people if she can't even handle a rape allegation. Well, that's the thing. Like, I don't really think that's a standard of competence displayed by Linda, really. And I think Australians really have to ask themselves, what do you value as an Australian? Mm. Like, what, what are your most basic demands from government? Is it that they will keep you safe, that they will make wise decisions in the in the protection of the country and its citizens. Do we think that that a, a fundamental, basic democratic principle of care is that the government ensures that there are no unnecessary deaths, that that nobody dies a result as a result of their own actions, that no one is exposed to sexual violence, trauma, and harm in their immediate purview. I think every reasonable Australian would say, yeah, that's that's kind of baseline. Whether they're Labor or Liberal, whatever the ideological mm. differences are, that these are the things that you do. You would think so. And I don't think the Morrison Liberal government can manage that. I don't – I think there have been so – because let's face it, there have been 
other allegations, some of them made against Liberal MPs. Mm. There have been, there were the extraordinary revelations on Four Corners about Tudge and Porter and, and you nothing know, questionable decisions about that that were you know that arguably constituted abuse of power and a culture in Parliament House which mm. I mean clearly if you're role modelling a certain kind of behaviour towards young women staffers, I think it's reasonable that people ask questions about your leadership capacity and exactly what you are representing to your staff and to a broader community in your party by your own behaviour. I think that's quite a reasonable discussion to have. But at the centre of this is an obviously traumatised woman who is a very credible witness in regards to the allegations that she's making. Mm. And the way the whole thing has been handled is shameful and disturbing and everyone should be concerned. Minister of Defence. And it's it's really telling that after... Literally hugging the dog yeah, to and, bits. And I think we're all a bit that way when it comes to this because, you know, what happened to Alan Tudge after the the revelations and of his affair? That was admitted I have a feeling he... Wasn't it reported he was that he promoted. talked he to was his promoted. wife about it? But but isn't he, that what you do? You just talk to your wife know, about it and tell the papers just, and then it goes away. Can I just say, Van, he was promoted. Like, And, of course, nothing happened to Christian Porter and the government uh, uh, in... Fletcher, the communications minister, who himself has been the subject of other scandal um, uh, allegations, uh, not sexually related, but other scandal allegations, um, wrote to the ABC to try and shut down what they were reporting about Tudge and Porter. This well, is a this... government that is mired in and determined to avoid accountability, avoid scrutiny, to the point where, frankly, I don't think you can trust anything any of them say. No, no, and I think that's quite clear. I think that appalling speech by Morrison yesterday was entirely a product of spin. Yeah. You know, whether he sat down and came up with him himself or sat with his advice. And he's a prime minister. Like, surely everybody is grown up enough to know they never do these things off the cuff. Yeah, that's They're right. always discussed with a team of people. Every message, every word, every, you know, suggestion, it's workshopped into the ground. And that's, I mean, that's the Liberal Party, modern Liberal Party worldview. I mean... I just it just does my head in. I'm old enough to remember when there were actually Tories that had principles, you know, and that something like this would have been outrageous to oh, conservatives. Yeah. Absolutely outrageous. It would have offended them on an ideological level, you know, this sense of exploitation, impropriety, you know, a failure to, you know, have institutional justice. Like it would have upset them. Mm. And I just think, you know, the modern conservative movement has in, in electoral politics has become so craven and opportunistic that it's it's a moral morass and I think it's shameful and I think that, you know, the principled conservative is you know, politically homeless now. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, let's, let's move on to talk a bit about some of the other ideological things that the Morrison government is doing. I might need a sip of water, you don't mind. No, not at all. And, and I think it's important that, uh, we do think about some of these again just coming back to the material things uh, it's always a big focus for me as you know one well, we of, are socialists I mean the material's kind of the whole act that's right so one of the things that's uh, been put forward we've talked before about the IR omnibus bill work choices 2.0 whatever you want to call it a key 
plank of this, the ideological plank of this, was getting rid of or watering down the better off overall test, the boot test. So tell us what the better off overall test is. Essentially, the better off overall test means that if you strike an agreement in the workplace, it has to leave the workers better off overall. That is to say that you can't negotiate down from the minimum sets of standards that people have. You can't take away what people have been given. Yeah, well, what people have have earned through their hard work, right? You can't you can't say, okay, the award minimum is X, but we're going to pay you Y. Any negotiation has to leave the they workers. They have to give you X plus. Yeah, the workers have to be better off overall. Now, the government had tried to water this down to put in place a kind of any business can have a two-year moratorium on this, which would essentially leave workers worse off. Now, what we saw under work choices was that the better off overall test didn't exist. It was a sort of, um, it was a slightly different test and it meant that lots of agreements were struck very, very quickly that left workers worse off. And of course, once an agreement is in place, it's not just in place for the three years or the two years that it's struck for. It actually serves as a baseline for future negotiations. So zom- uh, work this choices... This is what we call zombie work choices agreements. Exactly Because right. they were dead, dead, buried and cremated, according to Tony Abbott. And yet they were actually structuring people's paying conditions in the workplace. And dragging down wages overall. So the better off overall test... It is amazing. Can we just take a moment to acknowledge that work choices was 14 years ago and yet we are still living in the bitter, bitter consequences Oh, absolutely. And that's that's the point, right? Is that when you make changes to workplace laws, it's not just the immediate impact, which, by the way, would have seen people's wages cut immediately, but it's also the ongoing impact. Because, as you know, wages are a product of time, productivity, and a function of these things um, in the long term, right? So a wage cut today doesn't just cost you today, it costs you your ability to increase your wages in the future as Not well. Not to mention it affects things like your superannuation oh, of course. and your entitlements or what you'll retire. So all these knock-on effects, yeah. right? So the union movement, as people would be aware, has been campaigning to change this. The crossbench senators came out and said, actually, we're not going to agree to any IR changes that water down or remove the boot test. And instead of being debated yesterday, the bill was delayed so that Porter could remove that section. Can I just say something? Mm-hmm. I think crossbenchers, whether they're left right or indefinite, would be absolutely mad to pass this legislation. Oh, absolutely. And I'll tell you why. Because I think that the Morrison government, they can be very savvy political players, but I think increasing communities of people are dissatisfied, particularly on the centre-right, like mm. I said. And I think that uh, IR is such is such politically dangerous territory for the Liberals because people do not trust them mm. because communities of swinging working-class voters will back Labor if they think that the Liberals are going to cut their pay. I think that the whole discussion enables Labor to absolutely knock the paint off the Liberal Party in electorates that they need to win to form government. Bass, Braddon, Flynn, Ford, Capricornia, Herbert, you know, these are places where these are very powerful discussions. And if I was on the crossbench, I would drag this out as long as possible because the longer that Labor are attacking the Liberals and knocking paint off them for independence, for, you know, those people mm, who minor I don't parties, like, to, yeah, yeah. other minor parties that I don't like to name dissatisfaction with the Liberals from people who traditionally right-wing voters Mm. is in their interests. So they would be nuts to cut this off. Oh, look, and I think that that's that's what's happening, right? Because the Morrison government and Porter are trying to say that 
oh, well, we fixed it now because we're going to take that bit Oh, yeah, out. we fixed it. But the reality is this was an omnibus bill. There's a lot of detail in this. There's a lot of other problems with it. And I'll give you some examples here that some of these uh, crossbenchers have raised. So Jackie Lambie is concerned about the impact on casuals and the reversal of decades of common law precedent about what constitutes a casual, what doesn't constitute a casual, when people are misclassified as casuals, the rights that they have to back pay and so on. All of which plays very well in Tasmania. Absolutely. Jackie, champion of the exploited underclass. So there's a lot of um, things in the bill that would essentially reverse all of those elements and leave casuals worse off. Uh, Rex Patrick has talked about there's no way an omnibus bill on these issues can be passed and it should be broken up, which of course would extend and delay the whole process, which goes to your point about why as an independent or a minor party, would crossbencher, would you want this to happen quickly? Especially you if you're somebody like Rex Patrick, who campaigns on a, well, I'm a reasonable centrist kind of thing. Like any reasonable centrist is in a position to hoover up votes as long as the Labor Party is kicking the bejesus out of the Liberals on this. And Sterling Griff has basically said that the whole concept of IR reform is really just leveraging COVID as an excuse and there are significant problems with the um, kind of temporary in inverted commas elements of the omnibus bill that are related to COVID. So I think there is a long, long way to go on this um, for the Morrison government to try and get it over the line. I think um, we've seen business come out and say, well, I say business, big business come out and say we want this. There's not really anything in this for small business. Let's here's be really a clear question, about that. small business, and here's a question, working people. If big business are really enthusiastic about a suite of legislative changes, do you really think those changes are in your interest? And the reality is they're not. The, that's the, that's the, I mean, I think that's the spoiler alert. Like, of course they're not. Like, massive corporations, the kind of corporations that destroy small business and leverage economies of scale to absolutely destroy economic communities in their own profit-making interest, they love these changes. Yeah, and, and the government's excuse for them is quickly evaporating, right? So that's part of the reason they want to move quickly is they've tried to use COVID COVID, absolutely tried to use COVID as an excuse. We need these to restore the economy. Despite the fact they have been pushing exactly the same things for uh, decades. Absolutely. And let's be really clear. At the same time, they're saying we need this. We need this for flexibility. We need this to recover from COVID. They're also out there saying, oh, we're recovering from COVID. Oh, payroll payroll jobs, which is a measure of jobs that are recorded through the ATO. Still a million people out of work, but never mind. Yeah, but payroll jobs have recovered to 2020 levels already. Now, there are all sorts of issues with underemployment, the fact that most of those payroll jobs are still part-time, not full-time. We haven't recovered full-time work. You know, the non-payroll jobs haven't recovered. Unemployment is still predicted uh, tomorrow. It's going to come out tomorrow to be 6.5%. And as you say... There's actually 2 million people unemployed or underemployed in the economy. By the way, but, for any- but none of these changes, let me be really clear, none of these changes actually go to any elements of unemployment. No, they, they just, never do. They just don't. And just so everybody gets this into context, I mean, there are people who'd be like, ah, oh, 6.5% doesn't sound too bad. From 1945 until 1975, unemployment in this country averaged 2%. Like, 
Six and a half is shocking. Like six and a half is deplorable. And theoretically, we're one of the wealthiest countries on earth and that shouldn't be happening. There should be mechanisms within our economy Mm. to share wealth. And there's a lot of... And that means creating jobs. Amazing. And there's a lot of debate about the efficacy and the effectiveness of the JobKeeper program when there are billionaires literally getting millions of dollars in dividends and bonuses out of JobKeeper at the same time as their companies are letting people go, you know, and the Morrison government's doing nothing about that. So all, all of these... All of these elements, whether it's cuts to JobKeeper, whether it's pushing the IR bill, whether it's refusing to commit to increasing JobSeeker, are all that's the ideological platform of the Morrison government. Forget about your social conservatism. Forget about having a moral compass. Forget about this kind of, you know, good-hearted Christian man and his wife and daughters. None of that is you real. You have to explain to him why rape is bad. Because none of that is real. You know, there's this the whole Christian tradition of suggesting that maybe being an like I'm not going to say the word because no. Google doesn't allow it to people is is not on. Like I seem to recall reading this this book that a lot of Christians own that has very explicit instructions about how instrumentalizing people or dismissing their humanity or invalidating their pain is bad. Like it's and it's really weird. I guess he's just more interested in the singing and dancing when he goes to church. And and let's be really clear, the IR omnibus bill does exactly what you've just said. It instrumentalises people. You know, there are still provisions in there that would allow dodgy bosses to not give people copies of the employment agreement. What? Yeah, there's there's a lot of things in this in this bill that need to be broken out, need to be broken down. This is the ideological platform of the Liberal Party. Give money to big business, give money to billionaires as dividends and bonuses and take it from the taxpayer. Undermine and weaken the ability of working people to negotiate wages, to have safe and equitable working conditions and demonise and diminish the people who are most in need, whether they require job seeker support, whether they're in aged care, whatever it might be. So it, it it's all... It's all there. It's all in the parliament now. It's all happening. You know, it can be a lot. It can be overwhelming. But I would just encourage people to really follow and pay close attention to what the ACTU is saying. Oh, the ACTU came out yesterday and a study has been done, and I think you saw this, Mm. about the IR omnibus bill. A number of health professionals have come out and said this will actually compromise public health. Yeah. This will put people in such insecure and desperate workplace situations that things like pandemic spread, all these things, all the things that we've learned from coronavirus about people holding down multiple jobs and not earning enough money and, and being overtired and stressed, all of these things, the Morrison government is literally structuralising a public health problem in its IR bill. And this is what really blows my mind, is that we've just had 12 months of pandemic and every step along the way that has been a misstep, that has been uh, undermined, right? And anything that has gone wrong is actually attributable to the structural inadequacies in our labour market. That is to say, over-casualisation. That is to say, dodgy contracting. That is to say, low wages where people are required to do multiple jobs. You know, all of those structural problems in our economy have undermined our pandemic response. It is 
inarguable now. It is inarguable that insecure work is unsafe work. It now, is I'm, unsafe work. And yet the Morrison government is going, oh, well, what we want to do is we want to entrench this even more. We want to make it even worse for people. Now, I'm going to tell you something you may not know because we don't read the Australian in this house unless no. we're forced to. And the front page today has a wonderful suggestion. Are you ready? Oh, yes. I have seen this, yes. Billionaires to run quarantine. Now, how do you feel about that, Ben? I just... I just sigh deeply and go, of course the Australian is running this line. And let's remember, Twiggy Forrest at the start of the pandemic. Billionaire Twiggy Forrest. Billionaire Twiggy Forrest, who donated, in inverted commas, all of this, what turned out to mostly be garbage personal protective equipment. That didn't protect people. That didn't didn't protect people. That's what I mean by garbage. Was reimbursed millions and millions and millions of dollars from his friends in the Morrison government for that. Now... That's what happens, right? If you inject a profit motive into public health, you get the kind of circumstances that we're seeing in the US, right? I saw some reportage today that said that we've learned a lot. You know, we've learned a lot about what actually constitutes a good public health response and the the structural circumstances that facilitate that. One of those structural circumstances is a strong public health system. Another circumstance is population density. Another uh, circumstance is removing the profit motive from the rollout of things like vaccines and quarantine arrangements. And if you don't have those circumstances, you can end up in a situation very, very quickly, very, very quickly, where, yes, some people have made a lot of money. And there are people in the US who have made a lot of money, but also How many hundreds of thousands of people have now died? And we're up to almost half a million now, I think. This is the kind of outrageous dichotomy that exists. But in the context of the IR bill, so you have billionaires who are pushing a further entrenchment, a worsening of the workplace conditions that drive pandemic spread in Australia, who now also want to take over quarantine. Like, we know the failure of quarantine is based in the fact that you can be working at the front line of a community health response in the most desperate um, public health circumstances of our lives mm. and yet not be earning enough money to not need a, 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 a second, second job. job. Yeah. And that's how this has got out in the community. And the victim blaming that has gone on around individuals who are in those circumstances where they are obliged to hold down more than one job in order to feed their families, like billionaires would take over that system, which is already compromised by mm. their own greed. Absolutely. Like, already the situation is compromised by their own greed, and but the Australian wants them to have even... I'm just like, what a brilliant way to ensure that we all die a lot faster. I think the, I think the grim reality is <gasps> that the Simpsons... It's a bad news week, isn't it? It's a bad news week. It's a bad news We're going to get on to some good news, but I just want, I want to finish this segment by saying that the, I think the, the grim reality is that the Simpsons captured... Uh, what billionaires are really like really, really well with Mr. Burns. Billionaires want to run everything. They want to take everything. And really, they just want to do it for the sake of having it. And when you look at the way billionaires have behaved throughout the Western world in particular, 
you can't really argue against that. That's that is actually how they behave. So the idea that you'd give them even more power, you'd, you'd delegate things from the, from from government and from the public sector to them even more, it's just mind-blowingly stupid in my view, and will result in more deaths and, and more suffering. Oh, speaking of which, I'm going to throw this in. Um, there were there is a blackout in Texas. Oh, yeah. This massive blackouts yeah. across ro- roiling blackouts in Texas, and Texas is not part of the rest of the US's power grid. And do you know why? Because the education, the education, the, the electricity system was privatised, mm. and because the owners did not want to be subject to the same regulatory conditions as the rest of the country, they pulled out of the national grid. And of course all these extraordinary climate effects that are going mm. on because of climate change. There are snownados in Texas, oh tornadoes made of snow and millions of people without power. Well done, privatisation. So Americanisation is a bad, bad thing. Look, good news. We need to talk about some good news Okay, two quickly. pieces of good news. Quickly, uh, the common English crane was hunted to local extinction in the 1600s. Yep. Thanks to extraordinary conservation efforts, uh, conservationists have been able to restore the population of the English grain. And they did this by introducing the mo- reintroducing the most like bird, mm-hmm. which was a German crane from the same mm-hmm. species. And the German cranes gradually introduced have interbred with other forms of crane in Britain. So there will be there is a genetic profile of a British crane that is robust because it has all these different sources. It's kind of incredible. But it's amazing. one of the important lessons of this is that cranes are associated with wetlands. And, of course, wetlands are habitats that not only house all this bio, but all this diver- like gen- um, biological biodiversity, but are also carbon sinks. In fact, did you know wetlands, aka swamps, um, they actually process more carbon than forests do? Well, you and I, of course, do know this because at the I was leading into that. I Paris, this up. At, at the Paris Climate Conference, which we attended, which we attended, we we heard about this, and that this was supposed to be um, actually one of the Liberal government in Australia's big plans was to create more wetlands. Now, as I understand it, they haven't actually followed through with any of that. No way! Amazing, the Morrison <laughs> government. I am so shocked. But it, yeah, wetlands are a great carbon sink. They're yeah. a really important and part of the like ecology. The conservation of the crane is really important because if you are pursuing that con- that conservation effort, you are looking at habitat protection and mm. you are looking at reintroductions and restructuring those ecosystems that, of course, lead to better outcomes for everyone. The second piece of good news, which I just couldn't resist, mm. in Paris in the 60s and 70s, they built heaps and heaps and heaps of high-rise towers mm-hmm. and they built underground car parks underneath them, multi-stories mm-hmm. underneath them. Well, over the course of several decades, public transport's really good, you know, Paris is quite work- walkable, all those things. There are people driving less in Paris now. Mm. Cars are expensive, blah, blah, blah. But these underground car parks have become like sinks for crime, gang activity, like nefarious business in these sort of dark underground caverns. A company in um, France has started turning these underground car parks into mushroom farms. So That's great, isn't it? Yeah, they're transforming these sort of dead, dangerous spaces into places where an industry, an organic food industry, is being run that's employing local people and using the very sort of weird darkness in these mm. cavernous car parks in order to supply 
um, plate to table, farm to plate, whatever you can never remember what it's called. And, I mean, what a great, if you have the opportunity of risking jail sentence and or death, you know, running drugs out of an underground car park, or you can make a fortune as a luxury mushroom farmer, have a stable job, you know, maybe not make a fortune. In the same building where you live, But in the same building where you live, like, what are you going to do? In the centre of Paris. And it's not just mushrooms, they also grow chicory and microgreens and all of these other things, and they're being delivered to markets and restaurants around Paris on bicycles. So it's this absolutely incredible sort of urban farming project, and that made me happy. Well, that's good news, and that's a really great way to end the week on Wednesday for this week. Sorry I got a bit dark there. No, got a bit dark. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the week on Wednesday. Um, Don't forget to share us on Facebook, on Twitter, Direct mail people the link if you like. We also love the crazy little Instagram stories. Somebody said that we were the cutest socialist podcast they'd ever heard, (laughs) which we just, we love, you know. So please do share, do talk about these issues. (laughs) They are live issues as as we go to air uh, and they will be for weeks and months to come. Uh, And do keep giving us your feedback. Really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the weekend wrap every Sunday afternoon. Yeah, Ben does a marvellous monologue on all the things that you need to catch up on before work on Monday. 10 minutes. Uh, or not work, depending what your station is in life. That's right. Um, so, thanks for listening. Tune in on Sunday. Uh, that's the week on Wednesday. Love you, Vanny. Oh, I love you too. Bye. Bye.